0: Welcome back to Endless Vital Activity, conversations to inspire radical action. I'm David Johnston, founder of Accept and Proceed. At Accept and Proceed, we believe the cross pollination of minds and ideas is vital, and we can't find solutions in isolation. Connection and collaboration are critical. Throughout this series, we will engage in wide ranging conversations with radical thinkers, artists, scientists, and activists about the problems we have been given to solve. We are seeking new perspectives to reimagine our world. Today, I'm talking to Indy Johar. Indy is the founding director of Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs. An architect by training, he is a thought leader in system change, interested in radically redesigning the bureaucratic and institutional infrastructure of our cities, regions and towns for a more democratic, distributed great transition. I love chatting to India about radical creativity, how to drive deeply democratic society, and the transformation in perspective and relationships we urgently need with ourselves and our environment. Well Indy, I'd love to kick off by talking about your relationship to the work that you do. Was there an event early on in your life which acted as a catalyst for it, an awakening or a calling to do this work?
1: The nature of the work it sort of comes from a very young age I was um I, um, I was born a Sikh and have grown up into the Sikh faith and I'm a Sikh and into that thesis there is a fundamental question that Actually, there is um, great uh, capacities and equitable capacities in all of humanity and the world we see around us. And democracy is not just a democracy of vote, but it's a democracy of how we can contribute to the making of society. Um, And that, sort of as a thesis, has been an underlying belief that actually we have to create a new. Uh, invitation for all of humanity and beyond to be involved in making the society, the world that we are part of. And there was a kind of, and as a young as a young boy, for me that was a, very much an existence of how I my relationship with my friends. I, I saw the incredibleness of them and wanted that to be recognised by everyone else around them. Um, and that has manifested in a very you know particular way of. Uh, whether zero zero, you know, we have been very focused on the idea of how do you democratize the capacity of building society around us, whether it's a built environment or uh, buildings or whether it's actually public space or, or new types of institutions. The democratization of that capability to build society is fundamentally the question that we've been interested in. And I think it's part of the long arc in a way, if you would argue that we're on a long, um, arc of justice is both long uh, and bends towards towards that i think I think that's possibly the question that I've been really interested in and I fundamentally believe in um and I would say that is the kind of destiny if there is a destiny for humanity is to operationalize that arc um and I think technologies and other mechanisms are in are creating the conditions to create that environment and I think That's what's been motivating me and that's been kind of in a way the centrepiece of all our designs and work that we've done has been focused on that kind of understanding and what are the kind of different layers and situations that drive that understanding. Um, And that sits in a kind of new recognition of a kind of our model of the world has been constructed around seeing humans as units of labour, command and control. You know, you've all seen the paradigm, you know, of a um, well, the, not the paradigm, but the kind of uh, the meme that's going around of of uh, a young architect sitting in front of a computer, and a more quote unquote senior architect standing behind him, going left a bit, right a bit, right a bit, left a bit, and and in a way that that perfectly illustrates a systemic challenge of society where in a f- we are moving into a future which is going to be driven by creativity, care, complex cognition, yet we're deploying models of management which are bought from the 19th Industrial Society of control, where actually one person perceives that they can understand all the situational reality of another person to give control decisions. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of being human and the kind of incredible capacity of of every human being in the world, which is more powerful than any general artificial intelligence that's ever been created, and is likely to be created for the next 40, 50, maybe even 100 years. Um, so I think there's just a, you know, we're in the middle of this transition. And I think, and I think our language, our mechanisms are all locked into very old institutional ideas of power control centralization and the creative field is is actually perhaps even the worst um, in some of that stuff where ego and power becomes massively centralized in what is increasingly a complex entangled world and actually we need a whole new oper- operational theory.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think creativity, I, I hope, has got a, a large part to play in a positive future. You mentioned that you were raised a Sikh. How, how does your, your kind of practicing uh, of your religion affect your work uh, on a daily basis now?
1: For, for, me it's, um, for me, Sikhism is a thesis that you can see um, the incredible... Uh, beauty or capability of everyone. So Sikhism doesn't define by um, others. And you know, Somebody wants to ask me who's the best Sikh I know and the, the best Sikh I know is Paul Cardinal uh, who's, um, who's a Catholic because, he's, but he's an incredible human being. So it, it's, not, it's a definition of how we see ourselves in the world and different relationship uh, to the world and I think that's for me is how it defined me in trying to find a new way to drive this kind of democracy of agency and deep respect of everyone being your, equi- your equal and beyond your equal uh, because they are contextually the right part, right person to lead. Um, so I think for me it, it transformed, and it wasn't just me; it was also putting, you know someone, like David Saxby, my colleague, co-founder, and so there a, You know, there was an alignment that actually if you wanted to be a new type of organisation. We had to live a different type of values, and if we genuinely believed the world was complex and emergent, then you had to create an organisation which wasn't foundation, founded on, you know, um, the ego of the founders. But actually, the role was to create actually infrastructure for a whole one, a whole group of creators and innovators to be able to do what they do best. So and. That requires new power, new relationships, new kind of compensation thesis all the way through, because I think that's a different way of organising uh, for radical creativity. And I think that doesn't just stop at the scale of um, organisation. I think the big question is that there's a challenge that it throws for all of society, because I think a society is not geared for an age of creativity, care and complex cognition. And I think that's the big transition we're in the middle of. So I think it manifests, the Sikhism for me is, it manifests in my decisions of actually how do we drive a democratic, deeply democratic society, as opposed to one predicated on the thesis of votes and mob rule.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that resonates with me hugely. I think that having been on quite a journey running a business myself over the last 14 years, and, and probably that being a process of detaching my ego from the business completely and, and now seeing that it can be so much more than just the perpetual growth of revenue and, and headcounts. Um, and, and actually seeing that, that we can have majorly positive impact if we rethink that we, what we exist for has been certainly a journey I've been on. Um, in terms of your journey, it's been fascinating to this point, starting out in architecture and now you advise governments with multiple points in between. It's been very much a journey of learning by doing. Can you talk about this experience a little?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, all, this whole journey has been about, And um, you know, we started by, um, I trained as an architect. I sort of came out of architecture and um, worked in a fantastic architectural studio uh, with Panora Bassard. Off the back of that recognized that there were other things that we wanted to do uh, we recognized that the field of architecture was constructed uh, was increasingly being narrowed to the thesis of just making a building not the, the um not the services and the context that make buildings i.e the uh, you know, we, we sort of certainly my experience where we were building nineteen six rebuilding 1960 boxes with shinier materials, not necessarily dramatically changing either outcomes or services. And that sort of pushed me to sort of expand the conversation. I ended up, working, you know, working with Demos uh, in the UK and this was in 2004 or five with a with some wonderful people, including Melissa Mean and various other people. But that gave me an uncomprehensional policy of that. We collaborated. We realized that you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be commissioned for radical innovation because commissioning is an act of understanding. Um, <clears throat> commissioning is largely an act, historically has been, and in many ways has been. It's a com- commissioning of what you know. So you can only commission what you know. It's very difficult to commission for discovery. <clears throat> Most people don't commission for discovery. So we ended up doing the Bristol 11 beach with Demos where we turned around and built, uh, Bristol 11 beach uh, physically on site. And we were the commissioners and the entrepreneurs behind it, uh, with Demos. And then off the back of that, we turned around, and, you know, got involved with the impact hub network and with Jonathan Robinson, and various other people ended up helping build the impact hub network, but also got involved with building the impact hubs themselves. And we did that entrepreneurially. Um, And off the back of that, started to learn how to operationalize these sort of realities, then built, you know, we were part of setting up WikiHouse, which is open source housing um, um, sort of institution, which has got chapters around the world, then built OpenDesk, an open source furniture company, then helped build two social finance structures. So what we've been slowly doing is using what we know and building the next thing, building the next thing. And then from... You know, look, building social investment structures, we sort of spun, you know, one of my big realizations was that we needed a different thesis on the, on the future uh, in terms of looking at, you know, the world that we saw in the products that we were making were undermined by some of the deep codes in society. So the ID, ideal property rights or how we create quality assurance. These things were constructing the world that were, that were around us, these deep code layers. And that's basically where we thought there's a whole bunch of innovation and thinking and design, redesign work that's required and we built that matter. So my our journey has been very much about doing things, learning, understanding the next obstacle and building that and then understanding the next one and addressing that. So it's kind of almost this chain. And my biggest experience has been that actually brilliance is important, but craft is everything. It's your ability to craft and learn in context and situ that differentiates everything. And the privilege of having the capacity to have access to those relationships and gives you whole new opportunities. So I was deeply privileged to be part of the Impact Hub Network. You know, Building that in from 2000 and whatever, sort of four, four five to 2015, 16, 10 years worth of experience of being part of that was just extraordinary because it also meant that when we ended up building Dark Matter Labs, we were able to build a global, uh, institution where 40 of us all around the world and build a kind of decentralized distributed network uh, studio in a way that was that was relatively easy because I had learned so much about what does work and doesn't work and the role of kind of hosting and what sort of how do you host decent, decentralized uh, organizations and what the challenges were. So I think the number one thing is the privilege of learning in context, the privilege of actually then looking for the anomalies that actually resist that, and building forth that way. And that's been largely my journey to
0: date. I'd I'd love to talk um, a bit more about dark matter. I think um, something that you that you said earlier when we were talking about the values and the the rationale behind actually running a business reminded me of a quote that I found very inspiring recently um, by a philosopher called uh, I may pronounce this incorrectly but I think it's Yasuhiko Kimura who says that business is a creative and therefore spiritual endeavor. Great entrepreneurs enter the field of business in the same way that great artists enter the field of art. With their business creation entrepreneurs express their spiritual desire for self-realization evolutionary passion for self-fulfillment and creative vision of a new world the entrepreneur's business is their artwork the creation of the business is as creative as any creation of art in fact building a business may be the most creative human activity and for me that was incredibly inspiring because having you know a creative background I always felt that I was I I, I suppose I devalued part of the bits that I had to do around actually, you know, the kind of administrative parts of running my business. But as soon as I saw it as one big piece of art, it suddenly unlocked a whole new way of thinking about it. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh,
1: there's lots to sort of um, say about that, because I think you're right. There's, um, I I think if we're going to, Produce a different world and make different int- contributions to that world. We will have to change our tools and mechanisms of of producing that change. And I would say our organizational models and thesis are fundamentally locked into old paradigms. Um, you know, whether it's kind of an employment contract. An employment contract is, you know, is quasi a kind of thesis of slavery, um, where you you give away your time for a certain amount of time and the outputs of that time. And you reduce your ability to speak, you know, you you get rid of your freedom of speech and you subsume it to an employer um, in a basis in exchange for money that you need to survive. So, I mean, I think if you look at the constructs that, and you know, many businesses work very hard to, uh, Manage themselves out of it. So, you know, everyone will say, you know, the employees and our employees are our number one assets. And then if you say, show me on the balance sheet where employees are, and it's very clear employees are an on overhead on a, on, a, on a business. So I d- agree with you. Um, I think the question that I think I have is that, that redesigning the organization as we have it, I think it is a fundamental role. I think the challenge we all face is we have to redesign it. Um, It's a bit like, you know, you're you're flying a plane and you're baking at the same time. That's the real problem I think many of us are facing. You know, uh, it's a simultaneous act of operationalizing uh, a different way of doing it. So we're trying to, you know, constantly sort of evolve ourselves. So, for example, you know, in a decentralized organization, which isn't based on management-based con- models of control, how do you build accountability? How do you build uh, how do you build decision-making structures? How do you build um, uh, how do you not how do you create mentoring structures which aren't about soft power in the system? So how do you avoid structurallessness in those sort of decentralized decentralized models? How do you build uh, equity and justice when some people are working? massively hard and some people are working hours so what are the new relationships that we want to each other so and you know how do you do that over a situation where everyone's working from home everyone's working on laptops and working different hours as you know looking after kids and grandparents and other things so the design of an organization inherently is i think really really important It's probably one of the most strategic investments that we do the question I think I, I'm always sitting with is that the investment that we make into the operationalization of studios is often, you know, um, we invest probably more in fancy buildings and, and uh, or used to uh, fancy buildings and sort of nice furniture as symbols, but actually very little in the kind of organizational models and theories of how we operationalize ourselves. Um, and often we're still caught by very 19th century paradigms of ego and control. So I think you're right. The the challenge that I think is that we have to do this simultaneously. Simultaneously between the you know making the things that we do as well as actually changing and building the plane as we do it. And that is a that is a tough act.
0: It certainly is. Absolutely. I, I, I would love to um get your take on our living business plan at some point. It's a system I mentioned previously whereby we've developed um I suppose it's borrowing from the metaphor of ecosystems, so interdependent um, themes which all relate to each other uh, and allow us to really focus on balancing each individual aspect of our business to keep its e- our ecosystem healthy. So we've identified nine key elements within our, our business ecosystem that are crucial to our studio's long-term business strategy. So things like birth and death and influence and enlightenment and um, income, of course, which is a crucial one based in the current systems that we live within, but only one of nine within our system, uh, along with arts and love and excellence and earth. So it's really this idea that ongoing, on a daily basis, we're actually monitoring how we're achieving against, you know, objectives um, that underpin those themes. But but I'd, I'd, I'd really like to get into the the genesis of your lab, Dark Matter, which focuses on working to transition society in response to technological revolution and climate breakdown. Mm-hmm. How did it come into being?
1: It, like I said, I think we came into being very much around the basis that We were building open source furniture, we were looking at open source housing uh, and doing that, and we were looking at social investment structures, and we started to realize that actually behind the visible forms and products and services that we see around us, there is a whole institutional economy, logics and structures which are coded in. Which are actually the uh, um, they are the implied they create the implied order of the world we see around us and unless in any form of deep transition climate change itself is a is a symptom of a much deeper failure climate change itself is not is not the source of the problem fixing climate change won't fix the world climate change is a symptom of a failure. The failure, more fundamentally, is a failure of our ability to govern ourselves in a complex, emergent world and decentralized world, increasing a multipolar world, and we don't know how to govern. And by govern, I mean that actually, whether it's climate change, which is externalities of CO2, whether it's plastics and pollution into our food supply chain, or whether it's effectively uh, inequality whether it's biodiversity losses, uh, or whether it's any of these big issues that we've got. What you start to realize is that these are fundamentally linked to a thesis of how we govern ourselves, and also fundamentally linked to a thesis of how we understand ourselves. So if you're going to reimagine how we govern ourselves, we have to start to challenge fundamental uh, sort of hypothesis. The first one is, you know, humans are rational economic instruments. So if I, you know, i can incentivize you with money, and that's the mechanism of organizing humans. At the same time, actually I can I can so it's an it's humans are driven through external incentives. And that's one way of seeing the world. And humans are naturally, you know, neither good or bad. They just are it's incentive based systems. That's one model. But actually the data shows that's not necessarily true. Um, we know that at a certain economic point, actually money as a as a financial motivation is a very poor motivation. Money as a motivation for complex high performance cognitive cognitive function is a very poor motivation. So what you start to realize is that there are money is an incentive to a very poor old fashioned economy it isn't necessarily an incentive to a modern twenty first century kind of idea of human development and then you very quickly start to understand that it's not just money, it's even our thesis of what it means to be human is largely outdated. So our thesis of being human is, is constructed on an idea that we are separate from nature. Um, we, are, we have dominion over nature and we have control over nature. So separation, dominion and control as a language and a philosophical structure has, has was kind of at the root of how we saw the world in kind of the enlightenment, you know, root of how we start to see the world through the enlightenment. And that separation, dominion, and control language thereby then permeated through our institutions. The reality is we are neither separate, we are deeply entangled, as all the science is telling us, whether at the quantum level or biological level, we are deeply entangled with our world around us. Um, we you know, and the thesis of actually whether we have control or whether we are in treaty with is probably up for challenge. Um, and actually we have to cohabit this landscape if we're going to survive. So what you have is a foundational challenge happening to ourselves, our relationships to the world, and our relationships both to nature, our relationships to the future, which is not colonizing the future, but actually being in in respectful cohabitation for other people's rights to have futures as well, future generations that also have futures. Um, but also looking at the kind of our relationship with things. So not being actually consumers of things and hoarders of things, but being stewards of, of, of the kind of designed world itself. And then being in, in a new relationship to ourselves and the people around us, which is kind of new organizational theory. So when you start to put all that stuff together, what you start to realize, and certainly from our perspective, that we're in a deep structural transition. And that stru- structural transition is about re-embracing and embracing and recognizing the incoherence in our current real relationship with the world around us and recognizing that's under transition and that and scaffolding that both in terms of culturally but uh, in terms of how we govern how we contract how we organize i think is going to be the big revolution that we'll see around us and the work that we're doing is largely focused into those areas whether it's kind of uh, Micro treaties, looking at new contracts with nature, new ways of self-sovereign natural assets and nat- natural um, infrastructures. So, looking at how we reconcept- conceptualize and structure these realities becomes vital. And, and though our work, you know, whether it's that or whether it's looking at you know, how you practically do, you know, uh, sort of a new idea of housing.
0: In many ways, perspective is central to this transformation, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and perspective, and this is why I say the cultural work is critical. So this is why I think you know we have to rebuild our our perspective, our relationship, our view onto the world, and our relationship of ourselves, but also our relationship with the things and environment around us. And that transformational perspective is foundational, and. I think that's where creators uh, have a real critical role to play to challenge the orthodoxy of the vision that we create and the relationship that we create with things. And that, I think, is a really powerful vein of thought in there about new ways of looking at that, which I think will be critical.
0: And how do you think the politics of fear have impacted our ability to have a deeper engagement with our planet?
1: The politics of fear are designed, I mean, the politics of fear is a designed act because, um, and I would say that, you know, the question is what is the leadership. Um, so are we are we carriers and contagion mechanisms for fear, or are we something more? So I think fear is a construct of of our economic thesis and and our geopolitical relationships that extend around that. So I would say that we have constructed um, an economic environment which is about precariousness and making sure people live in precariousness. And that precariousness builds a foundation for fear and builds a foundation for reception to to all sorts of instruments of uh, being hyper, uh, hyper-vigilant to threats and to fear, uh, fear reactions. That also drives a short-termism as well, both in terms of how we see the world and operationalize into it, and also thereby creates a new need to fix our precariousness with emotional goods, which effectively uh, patch our, our, our vulnerabilities. And so what we have is an economy and uh, a labor market thesis, and, uh, uh, which are driven through an economy of fair. So we know chocolate buying, for example, goes up in recessions. We know you know, whether it's kind of fast fashion goes up in, in, in recessions. So we know there's a very particular economy geared to a thesis of fair um, and a thesis of short-termism. And I think that's a real structural challenge. So I, I think it's becoming aware of this kind of social, neurological, um, the context for societal-level social or societal neurological decision-making and then the economies that we create as a result of it. Those are, ma- those are massive dependencies. The data is increasingly there. The question is, do we have the decision-making capacity and the leadership to look at that and what the, what those mechanisms are beyond that?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like one of the first steps is really recognising our entanglement in these structures and governance and then building more accountability, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, we do very much so. agree. It, it is really important that we that we become conscious of this reality. But even, I think it's there's what I'd call a consciousness that that happens in a podcast like this uh, versus a consciousness that happens in an everyday reality. And I think, so there's one level of consciousness that you can do in these sort of conditions. But then there's another type of consciousness that we have to advance in our everyday reality, becoming aware of those entanglements at at a much deeper level.
0: And and it feels like movements that are emerging, like Extinction Rebellion, for example. Um, in season one, we spoke to one of the founders, Claire Farrell. They seem to be tapping into something that that is kind of almost waiting to be birthed. In that respect,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think we've got many many movements around the world. And Extinction Rebellion is an incredible one as well, and uh, I, I think I. I, I I think this is a structural transition. I keep saying, I think this is not, it won't, I don't believe this will be achieved through protest. I think this requires um, sort of not just a fight against the old, but an actual deep proposition of the new. Um, And the deep proposition of the new is not, let's decarbonize, that's again a fight against the old. It's recognizing systemically we need a new relationship with the world around us, and then building that uh, with a kind of propositional vision. And I think we're starting to see some of that language and some of those frameworks. And I think that will create the politics of, of uh, and the pathways of that future. And I think that's one of the key role of prov- provocative agents of creativity is to, to challenge those, those positions and to open them up and to uh, drive the optimization in different formats.
0: Yes. Absolutely, and and for me, this connects to centering empathy and and enabling richer discussions, which challenge the state and the system. How do you think we can go about that?
1: Well, I mean, I think empathy is a really powerful tool, but also it's a tool of um, it's a dark pattern as well, and empathy can be used um, in design when we use empathy. To what ends are we deploying it? To which purpose? To which transference of power? To which um, to which end? And I, and I suppose I say that is that empathy in itself is a tool, and it can be used for good and bad things. In fact, I think it creates. Um, I'm very wary of 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 those tools because they create. Uh, they are currently badly governed and they uh, create um, transfers of power in a way that we don't understand and operationalize and can't manage so I agree I think these sort of advanced forms of relationship are really critical I think it's also really vital and we as leaders I think we have to be very careful as to when and how we deploy them what the ethics and morality of deploying those tools are Um, you know there's that classic moment where somebody, you know, you've probably been in organizations which are highly hosted or sort of, you know, led by empaths, and they will go, How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. No, really, how are you? No, really, really, how are you, David? And in the third point, you'll tell them something. You'll say, Well, you know, I feel a bit, yeah, X, Y, Z. And they become, you know, they, they are empowered through your telling of what you feel. And then they go forth and tell somebody else, saying, "Well, you know, people in the organisation aren't really happy about this." So this kind of this kind of empathetic extraction to create new power nodules in society in organisations, I think, is also problematic. And 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 so, how do you do that? What does that mean? Is that person, you know, is there a Victor Saviour sort of complex going on there, which has its own? Um, insidiousness into its own problem and i've seen many organizations get corrupted by exactly that thesis where the victor savior relationship empowers a series of emotionally intelligent people who believe they understand the problem but perhaps they do perhaps they don't and so so I, i suppose i'm just putting an arc on this conversation that i think we have to be careful of these tools they're very powerful tools with huge distortion effects um, and drive huge amounts of ego at the center of them as well.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, it's a very tricky subject there. I mean, an empath leader, I, I wonder if I consider myself to to be one. It's quite complicated to even be able to interrogate your own authenticity on certain subjects. And Indy, I'm, I'm really interested to know, you know, from your perspective, what does leadership look like in a more interdependent world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, the biggest thing I, I can say, and I think it's it's quite challenging, is firstly, I think leadership recognises that everything is leadership. Um, that's the first space, is that leadership is not sitting on top of other people. It's recognising that everyone operating in the organisation is a leader in their context, in their situation. Um and I think that's a really, really important point. So I, I sometimes balk at the kind of thesis of leadership, which still falls back into hierarchical languages. Um, and that, so that's one thing. Second thing, I think leadership is 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 what I would call a, a dynamic role. Sometimes you're leading, sometimes you're serving, sometimes you're provoking, um, all sorts of things which have different relationships to that future. So I, I suppose I, I would just frame it through that lens. I think if you want to look at, I would say the, the real power of a leader is to support the learning development function of an organization. I think at the center of future organizations will be learning development functions as opposed to command and control functions. Um, and I think that will be the real transition thesis of future organizations.
0: So, so you know, how do you think we can create new ways of organising that can unlock everyone's capabilities? I think it
1: starts by respecting that knowledge, design and creativity is contextual. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think it, it, it sort of starts with that reality. Um, I think... It also starts with, actually, the second part that has become very clear to me, is that um, I've seen so many quote-unquote mediocre people who have been given great context to learn in five, six years become almost world-class. At the same time, I've seen some great you know, people we thought were world-class, sitting in very exalted chairs of power, who have lost their roles look very mediocre very quickly. So what you start to realize is that actually it is your privilege to be in relationship with context that gives you your power and your recognition and your comprehension and your capabilities. And so I think that's a really key point. I think there's a humility that that brings that is not my brilliance or your brilliance. It's just the privilege that we had to be able to experience things and learn things that puts us in many of these places. So I, I would say that's probably those are some of the key points for me.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, beautifully put. Um, you know, I've got a, I've got a further question on behalf of the business owners like myself amongst our audience. Um, as, as so many of these symptoms are desperately needing reconfiguration, how do you manage those realities and their urgency as a company?
1: Yeah, it's it's challenging. um I think the reality is we. I, I mean, I often slightly worry that people say, you know, I do this to earn a living, and I do this to do good. And I was like, well, what does that really mean? I think these offset business models are, are just non-real. um I think they're they're kind of deeply uh, certainly now, right. Um, I, I think that's like you know uh, flogging a dead horse on one side and trying to say, well, I've got just enough meat uh, so that I can carry on, you know, planting the vegetables on the other side. I, I think it's it's a next song. Um I think what we're talking about is probably the largest transition of society um, that we've prob- we've certainly witnessed in our lifespans. I suspect it's many many generations before us as well. So globally, we're going to see a massive transition. So for leaders in business, my number one thing would be there's a new coherence demanded and that new leadership demanded and new capabilities demanded, new mechanisms to describe and provoke that world into being. I think there's more work than anyone can ever imagine. Um, I think in that avenue of work, and I, I, I think this idea that we must work to persist the old economy I think everything has to transition, and it will transition very quickly. Um, so I suppose I would be challenging all of, all of all of the leaders that you have on your podcast to be talking about much more structural transition in a deeper sense, if they're going to remain relevant. Or, as we're going to see, are we going to see a great dying out of organizations that can't tra- transition? And that's also
0: likely impossible. And and as designers and creatives, how do you think we can better support this transition to a better world?
1: Well, from from my side, I think designers are synthesis; and they synthesise things, and I think and they also make things possible and plausible. They give things form, elegance, and form. So, I think one of the big roles of designers is to is to show the plausible and the possible. And that I think is really critical and also to start to chart pathways into that future um, and and build that. So I would say designers have a key role in both visualizing that future, but also making it plausible. Um, Because I think this will be a journey of discovery and design as opposed to management and execution. And so there's a wonderful need and requirement for this to be designed as opposed to executed. And that will need to be an explorative journey. But I think designers have the capacity and the capability and the needs to be able to paint the pictures and chart the maps in the evolutionary sense uh, over that period. I think that's the key, the key story for me.
0: And, and can you share any smaller everyday actions that people could take to lay the foundations for a more positive world?
1: I, I think it's manifests in every one of your relationships uh, manifests in every way you're organized as a business it manifests in um, how you pay your staff You know, so what is your pay reward mechanism uh, it manifests in uh, every one of those relationships of um, are you a learning development organization at root um, so I think the first thing I'd say is that look at your organisational behaviours and structures, because I think that there's massive opportunities for transformation in there, that are, you know, at every root and cause. That will that will ripple out into everything you make and design afterwards. The second thing I would say is that uh, I I think we're moving away from a from design being based on fields, i.e., architecture, communication, i.e. But actually, much more around design being based on uh, sort of polymathics design and sort of the intersection across these fields. And that I think becomes more and more critical as we start to chart into these new territories. And I think there's a, you know, I think some people call it strategic design and other things like that. But I I think there is a field of hybrid design which is emerging, which I think is going to be really critical into this future. So I, I, I would look into some of those things. Um, yeah, I would also, you know, become, I think we, we're seeing it, and we've certainly seen it in DM. You know, as a studio, we are, Matter. we're a studio, we've got coders, data scientists, uh, designers, uh, anthropologists, um, uh, lawyers. we have got a lawyer joined the team recently. Uh, you know, we've got a, the hybridity of capabilities in the team um, is critical to doing the design work that we do. So it also requires foundationally different capabilities to a traditional design studio, which is full largely of designers and potentially a few coders or one or two sort of um, coders like that. So I think what we've found is we have to build new capabilities into your organization as well uh, as part of that transition. And finally, I think, the nature of the work is changing i think for us that's largely about working at system scale looking at uh, designing new financial models and new financial flows new sensor new institutions and getting into the actual legal and technical design of these infrastructures which is really critical so i think from our work you know you know designing um redesign property rights all the property uh, property rights and how they're bundled is a full system problem, both from legal documentation to UX to new economy that is leashes. And looking at that system level um, response is a strategic role for us as, as designers.
0: In, in terms of the nature of, of your work changing that you mentioned there at Dark Matter, um I mean, we're, we're all on a, on a journey, I suppose, and have a certain direction of, of travel, but do you ever find yourself compromised, you know, making decisions based on commerciality versus, you know, what, what you, you, you intend to do more of in the future?
1: We, we don't tend to RFP for jobs, so we're not going for jobs. What we're largely doing is doing the work that we want to do, and then other people join us on the journey. And that's kind of almost the business model we've set ourselves out from. And once you start down that route, you know, and we write a lot on dark matter provocations, which people can read about, and medium. People find us, then choose to work with us, and we collaborate to build some of these micro-institutions with them and learn and develop over that time. So in a way, we're not operating from the typical thesis, bidding from work. We're operating through a thesis of creating a hypothesis of what the world looks like and people coming to us on the basis of that and the explorations that we're doing and the learning that we have and then developing that further
0: and and in terms of the way that you run dark matter i'm i'm intrigued so as part of our enlightenment theme that i mentioned within the living business plan we do a lot of things as a team that that we never did you know 4 years ago so we uh every month have a breathing workshop for example which we've been doing remotely during lockdown um but we also just we we kind of do things as a team which help us explore what it means to truly be a human whether it be movement or uh kind of nutrition or all manner of different things that we're exploring, um, but but what other metrics do you build into Dark Matter as a as an organisation that um, maybe are against the the kind of accepted norms or or traditional uh, ways of running a business?
1: Um, well, there's, there's quite a few, but I mean the ones that you've cited are really great. Uh, I'd love to hear more about them as well. Um, so, for example, we tend not to do. Individual project-based accounting and micro-level profit profit loss sheets, if we can avoid it, Um, and that's largely because what we're trying not to do is create create uh, scarcity models of how we design, and not creating a scarcity-based context for design innovation. So that I think is is one key component. Um, Secondly, I think you know we do all the stuff that probably not not normally that we do in terms of actually we're a completely decentralized organization so before COVID we were meeting every quarterly so uh, uh, actually went from quarterly to every three every four four months where we would you know everyone would come together uh, from around the world to physically co-locate for a week which is all about sharing learning so putting learning at the center of the organization as opposed to control that means that it's a fundamentally different process. We have even our organizational development lead, i.e. traditionally would be, you know, chief operating officer or whatever that you would say is actually learning. It's a learning oriented role as opposed to administration role. Our pay structures are based on, you know, our pay differentials between the highest and lowest paid employee is, I think, no more than two. Um, so we have a completely different pay structure based on years of experience after, uh, after 18 years old, uh, which means that actually uh, plus, uh, plus an X factorial, um, and that's a mechanism to not differentiate people on the basis of um, sort of, I'm a data scientist or I'm a coder, that uh, it's based on the idea that we're trying to give people uh, almost like a um, tenured professor payment, a sort of a personalized basic income that allows people to live the lives that they want to live uh, around the world. So we're, we're trying to build new pay structures, we're trying to build uh, different ways of operationalizing. But that probably gives you a bit of a feel for some of the stuff that we're
0: doing. It does. It does. Um, well, well, as you asked about it, the, I I can tell you a little bit about the things that we're doing, um, within the, the living business plan, um, Two of our themes are birth. So birth is really around this idea that we encourage a steady rhythm of new, non-commercial initiatives to begin within the organisation. Um, but but part of that is just is just kind of newness within our organisation. So uh, the the objective that sits under birth um, or one of them is to do something new as a team every month. For example, last month we did Shaolin Kung Fu in Downs Park here in Hackney as a team, which was really interesting. And we learned from a, an expert, a Shaolin Kung Fu master, uh, around not just the movement, but the way that you can kind of um, observe the energy within your own body. And he also went into breathing. Um, but then also within that uh theme we also have passion product projects i suppose art based projects uh that we initiate every every 3 months so we've got four a year of those and then the other the other theme that relates to this is enlightenment so so this idea that you know that i suppose when we were st- brainstorming the themes of our living business plan Uh, enlightenment was more associated with education but we didn't think that that captured enough of what we want to really explore as a team so what we do is make moments of enlightenment possible for everyone in the team uh, by exploring the fundamentals of of what it means to be a human and of course we know there's things like breathing and eating and moving and loving you know these are all parts of the fundamental um a human experience so so part of it is i'll be honest around enlightenment is things like training so people learning after effects or accountancy packages uh, or project management packages all sits within that objective or that theme but also nourishment or wellness um and and in that vein actually almost a year ago now we started doing breathing workshops as a team the first few were in person with an organization called breathe pods and they were very very powerful i i up until that point had never really practiced intentional breathing and as a group we you know we went through an experience it was about two hours long and at the end of it some people looked like they were distraught you know some people had unlocked lots of emotions some people looked like they'd done very very good drugs and other people just looked a bit a bit dazed and confused but whatever happened that day it was the beginning of us sharing something that is not the normal experience of the day-to-day of being in a studio together and that's something we've continued to do and and personally i found the practice of breathing and exploring um the different ways that you can you can kind of affect so profoundly your own mental state and emotional states through breathing it, 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 it to be incredibly um, enlightening
1: Amazing yeah, it's so good to hear I mean it's so good to hear yeah, I mean it's a great experience that you've had and it takes a lot of care um, to do all that stuff I mean it, it's easy just to have put, put down a checklist but the care it takes to be able to execute that stuff is is quite phenomenal
0: Thank you, Indy. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I suppose, I suppose, my, my final question for you, because we've covered a lot of ground. But, Indy, if we can work together to realise our interdependence and build new systems which recognise everyone's potential, which I truly hope we can, what comes next?
1: So I try to resist asking that question <laughs> um, because I think, I think it is something beyond our imagination. Things, you know, I, I think there's a degree of that certainly myself, I think we've been born in a world of competition. And if we can create a conditions, this is why I think, you know, universal basic income is really interesting because it creates decentralized autonomy and decentralized um, sovereignty in a way. And that sovereignty allows us to then become uh, aware of our interdependences, not through a thesis of of um, competition, but a th- through a thesis of care, and actually, um, so I think that transition will unlock things in human civilization that we've not been able to unlock. I think it's a paradigm shift in human civilization to make that claim. Um, I would and uh, and I think it opens up worlds that we cannot imagine yet. Um, you know, I think it's been, you prob- we've seen glimpses of it. You know, I think some of the work that's happened in the speed that, that the human civilization has constructed, the vaccine is based on massive global collaboration at a scale that we've never witnessed before and speed that we've never witnessed before. I think we're just at the beginning of that. And I think that was just an example of that story. So I think there's a great capacity for human civilization to transcend itself in a way that we've not, not imagined. I suppose I don't want to sit here and draw a picture of flying cars and and, and and shiny skyscrapers because I think it will be a different type of world where we actually live in quite different relationship both to the future, to nature, to the things that we have around us and to each other. And I think it, and at the center of it is a new recognition of who we are as human beings the rest of it will be the, the implicate order that has formed from those new relationships.
0: Indy, I just want to say thank you. You know, it's been a fascinating conversation and on, on behalf of our audience, it's a great pleasure to have this conversation with you and thank you for your time.
1: Not at all. It's a real pleasure and thank you for inviting me to be part of this conversation. I uh, really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to our conversation today. I hope you find Indy's words, work and outlook as inspiring as I do. Endless Vital Activity is brought to you by Accept and Proceed. Remember, creativity can reimagine our world.